0: You're listening to Dr. Ward Bond's Life-Changing Wellness, the fastest-growing natural health, nutrition, and inspiration podcast in the nation. Uplifting stories, powerful messages, and triumph over adversity, the experience of entertainment and encouragement is about to begin. And now your host, Dr. Ward Bond. John Callis is a veteran writer, director, producer in the entertainment business, and was the worldwide VP for the Walt Disney Company. He was even at the beginning of the MTV launch making music video history as John was awarded Best Concept for Glenn Frey's Smuggler's Blues, produced music videos for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and probably one of the most iconic music videos of all time, and my favorite, Sammy Hagar's I Can't Drive, 55. Well, John Callis produced and directed many of the television episodes of Howie Mandel's Bobby's World. And as for major motion pictures, John works John's works can actually be seen on live-action teasers for Ransom with Mel Gibson, Dennis the Menace with Walter Matthau, Body of Evidence, The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy, and Glengarry Glen Ross with Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Alan Arkin, and a young Alec Baldwin, as well as title sequences for the two Jakes and A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, and Jack Nicholson. But a book could literally be written on John Callis's film accomplishments But we're here today to talk with John about his very personal memoir, When the Rain Stops, a must read if you have been traumatized, abandoned, battled depression and or ever had thoughts of suicide and even attempted. it. Today, ladies and gentlemen, there is hope. So let's welcome our very special guest today, John Callas. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Dr. Bond. Nice to be here. Thank you. Now, tell us, why did you write your memoir, When the Rain Stops? Well, it was actually a journey to be a a
1: cathartic journey because I wanted to start to understand what happened in my life. Um, Quite often, the perception of what you think happened and the reality is quite different. So I decided to start journaling and I handed it over to a therapist and the next session, he literally started crying, saying, I don't know how you got through life. So I thought, maybe I got to keep writing this journal and maybe other people can benefit from it.
0: So was the book overall, was it uh, great therapy for you? Uh,
1: The book as far as therapy was fantastic. I mean, to be honest with you, it was very painful to write and quite often my wife would come by the office and she'd see, I would just be crying like crazy. And she said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm just, it's hard because I want to really relive it as the child, not as the adult. And that's what, um, was the difficult part.
0: Yeah, John, as I read your book, um, my gosh, even the first chapter was very painful to get through. Not that I lived uh, any of those uh, episodes or situations in your life, but to read it and knowing that it, it is true and to see that it all started as a child. I mean, at 12 years old, uh, you were on a train from New York City to go to Military Academy in Virginia. And you watched your mother turn away as she got smaller and smaller as the train left. I mean, what were you actually feeling at that very moment?
1: That's a great question. As she turned away and, and um, got smaller and smaller, I felt like I was being completely abandoned, completely unloved, and I could not understand why my mother hated me so much. And it wasn't until years later I
0: found out the truth. Now, was it uh, was the feeling of being on the train by yourself, and, and I can't even imagine the thousand thoughts you must have been dealing with. And you talked about some of those in the book, but you also had two other sim- siblings. Did it seem odd to you that you were the only one on the train going to military school, and your brother and sister basically got to stay home?
1: Yes. uh, With both of my brother and my sister, I often looked and said, why am I such a bad kid? Why am I being sent away? And they get to stay home. And then I thought, well, maybe I just am not loved. Maybe I'm not part of this family. Maybe everyone does hate me. Maybe the world just abandoned me. And um, it, it was it was terrifying. It was very difficult for me to sit on that train to go from New York to Virginia and have to confront the fact that maybe, in fact, I was a bad seed. And it took years for me to realize the truth.
0: You know, as, I'm, as your book starts off and, and you get on the train and all of a sudden from that moment and as, you, as, as the reader is going through your life story, um, there's a lot of anger there. And that anger seemed to really come out immediately on that train ride to the military academy and really didn't what you had anger for years.
1: Yeah, I think the anger on that train was just a culmination of everything I was feeling, abandonment, loneliness, depression, anxiety. And honestly, it started, the anger really started 10 days after my third birthday when my dad died. And I was just angry at the world, angry at God. I gave up my religion. I said very exploratory words about God. And I I just lost everything. I lost hope, I lost faith. And I just got really angry at the world and started acting up like crazy.
0: Yeah, you know, John, one thing I've learned that um, a lot of people who do get angry with God and and, uh, yell at him just out of complete anger and frustration, he doesn't mind that at all because I think he's just happy with the fact that you're talking to him and uh, opens up a door for him to to make his move. But uh, we'll get to that later. But I understand that uh, you had a lot of... I call them very traumatizing situations at military school. But then after military school, you went to a private school where you were bullied and eventually attempted suicide. What happened?
1: Well, after I got uh, released, I'll call it, from military school, I thought, finally, I'm going to get out of military school. I'll go to a private school. I can hit the reset button. Life's going to be beautiful. And so I walk into the school the first day. I'm in the uh, lounge, we'll call it. And the six foot two guy came up and said, hey, I understand you went to military school. I said, yes, I did. He goes, did they teach you how to kill? I said, well, yeah, of course they would. But, um, you know, I don't actively use it. He said, stand up. I want you to fight me and kill me. I said, look, I'm not into this. I'm not into fighting. I'm into peace. And for the next three years, he spit on me, pushed me, bullied me. And I just refused to engage in fighting because I knew if I lost my temper, it it could potentially be a repeat of what happened in my childhood. And I didn't want to go through that trauma once again. So I chose to let him do that for a long time, about three years' worth.
0: You know, as I was reading this, reading the beginnings of your book, of the time you spent at military school, and then I think to me – the most traumatizing story was the kid that um let's just say he didn't hang himself and that to me was very hard to to grasp um i and i know you were telling the truth without a shadow of a doubt of that episode so ladies and gentlemen when you read the book when the rain stops there are things you're going to read and um you're going to need to take a moment to ponder. I will tell you that right now, but life doesn't life isn't always a bed of roses and and John, mm-hmm. knowing that traumatizing uh, situation with that young man and knowing what really happened, um, did you start feeling that anytime you wanted to, let's say cry out for help, nobody was around to believe you. Nobody was around to help you. I mean, how, what mechanism did you use to get through that time before you ended up in private school with another bully uh, standing in front of you? Trying to get through
1: those type of traumas, honestly, I had no answers. I was just completely lost. Um, the gentleman you were speaking about in military school, he was the first guy I ever met that had long hair. And we would have multiple conversations all night long about what the peace movement was. And so finally we came up with a plan that I was going to run away from military school with him, join the peace movement, I was going to become a hippie and and live a much happier life. And one morning I was going out of my room, um, to go to the bathroom to brush my teeth. And I looked up and it was an open quad so that, you know, there was no roof. It was just railings like a prison almost. And, uh, he was swinging from the rope. And I fell to my knees, and um, I, I just, I lost it. I, I had no support. Uh, I didn't know about therapy at the time. Um, military school certainly didn't offer any, um, any counseling. Uh, private school, when I got there and was bullied, I went to the headmaster and explained what was going on. He says, oh, you know, well, he also has problems. You know, you're just going to have to deal with it. And I said, uh, okay. And I said, look, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'll deal with it the best I can, but if it gets too much and I snap, it's not on me. I'm telling you, I need some help here, and nobody would listen. So it was a very lonely time, uh, which pretty much led up to the attempted suicide.
0: And so did you think by attempting a suicide, and I'm sure at that moment you were hoping to succeed, that all your problems would just go away? Great question, Dr. Bond. Um, Truthfully, it got
1: to the point where I just wanted the voices in my head to stop. I wanted the loneliness to stop. I wanted to stop feeling like a a piece of garbage and unworthy of life. And so when I walked to the edge of the dock and I saw the lake was partially frozen, I said, tonight it ends. I'm gonna end all this nonsense. I don't need to be here. And I jumped in and it was cold. The water rushed into my lungs. And for some reason, it just propelled me back out of the water. I, I guess it was um, a survival instinct. And I sat on the dock freezing um, and realizing this, there's got to be something more to this than what I'm experiencing. I have tons of questions, no place to ask them, and I don't know what to do. And honestly, if it wasn't for my soccer coach who convinced me to play sports, I don't know. I might have made another attempt at it. But that that was a very... Minor beginning to a very long healing process.
0: You know, John, the book is probably one. Your book is probably one of the the best memoirs I've ever ever read. And thank you. I'm. I'm and, and, and and ladies and gentlemen, when you read John's book, when the rain stops, the only way to really get through this book is to put your feet into his shoes. And and in a way, you're going to be forced to be uh, slipping into those shoes and reading word for word and literally feeling part of that trauma, feeling part of that abandonment, feeling that no matter all all the bad things that, that can happen, and then you're crying out and you're not hearing anybody say, I believe you. You're not hearing anybody say, hey, uh, let me help you. And most people in that situation, and I'm not talking John's situation, I'm talking about on the other side, most people are basically just trying to protect the life that they have, and they don't want to be ruffling any feathers. And, unfortunately, that causes more pain to people like John who experience all of these things. You know, John, why do you believe that your mother's decision to send you to military school perhaps saved your life from endless trouble. And I didn't even really see that in towards the end, of, until us until towards the end of the book.
1: Well, I guess it all started with uh, the trauma of losing my dad and I became very angry as we talked about already. Um, and it just kept compiling. I mean, I would Go to school and hear about kids going out to ball games with their dads. And I started lying and saying I was going to go out to ball games with my dad on the weekend. And, and it just one lie after another. And the anger just kept building up and building up. And
0: it got to the point where I just wanted to explode. Now, you said something in your book I, I think that is so profound. And ladies and gentlemen, you need to listen to this. John, you made a statement in your book. And you said depression can be a comfort zone. What do you mean by that? Another great question. Um, Most people don't realize that
1: depression and traumas have a comfort zone. It's because it's the only place you can feel comfortable, safe, and nobody's going to hurt you. When I was depressed and I went to my comfort zone, I felt like, okay, the world is outside. It can't get in. I won't let it in. I'm safe. I've got all the walls up around me. Nobody's going to get to me. And I am alone, granted. I don't have any help, granted, but I felt safe. So it became a comfort zone. And it's a very strange place to be because there's almost no exit. You know, it's a very tough place to get out of.
0: Yeah. I mean, is the, is the, if, if you're, if someone is using depression as a comfort zone, is it sitting in the dark? I mean, what, what would, how, what is the feeling of depression? And having the feeling of being in a comfort zone, I mean, you say, I mean, safety.
1: It is. It's absolute safety in the comfort zone. Um, as far as sitting in the dark, that that is the typical um, view that people have of somebody curled up in a ball in in the corner in the dark covering. Uh, for me, it wasn't like that. I, I could be in a bright, sunny room and I'd still be in a very dark place, uh, primarily because I found that regardless of where I was, as long as I was alone, and nobody around me to hassle me, bug me, or bully me, I felt safe. And it could be in my dorm room, it could be a walk in the woods, but at least it was a safe place where I didn't have to interact with anybody, I didn't have to listen to anybody's nonsense, and I found a quiet place for me to be
0: safe. You know, when you were younger, you had a smart mouth. And, <laughs> so, and, and, and ladies and gentlemen, if, if, when you read some of these things in the book, <clears throat> with the things that John said, I literally kind of laughed because John, I probably would have said the same thing. <laughs> Is, was that, was that a protective measure for you in those types of situations? I mean, I, I, I get some of the things that you said, uh, even to those in authority. Well, (laughs) I laugh
1: because uh, I look back at it with with humor. (laughs) Um, Yes, I had a mouth on me. There's there's no question about it. I think part of that, and and I'm not trying to justify it, but part of it was growing up in Jersey City, New Jersey. uh, It wasn't a very um, pleasant environment, shall we say. It wasn't middle America where you have the white picket fence. You were a scrappy kid in the street, and if you didn't have a mouth on you, you were going to get slaughtered. So it was really (laughs) fight or flight, you know. So you learn to be sharp-witted, sharp-tongued. And honestly, that's what got me in a lot of trouble. I mean, my first night in military school, I literally got knocked out three times because of my mouth, and (laughs) deservingly so. But I didn't realize it at the time (laughs) because I was just trying to battle my own
0: demons. Well, John, you were a Jersey Street kid. And from what I could tell uh, from all of those... uh, at the military academy they chose to be there they wanted to be there you seem to be the only one that didn't want to be there at all so i can understand the street coming out in you um to answer your question about being there
1: or not wanting to be there i imagine most kids wanted to be there there were probably a few others that really didn't want to be there um i certainly didn't want to be there but ultimately the courts gave my mother a choice. It was either military school to stop my path that I was on, or they were going to send me to reform school. Hindsight, I probably wish I'd have gone to reform school.
0: (laughs) It probably would have worked Uh, out the same. Yeah, probably so. And now on (laughs) depression, you know, for you, what is your strategy for coping with depression? Uh, Okay, so coping with depression is a very serious thing.
1: I think oftentimes the um, community or the um, therapist and stuff wants you to overextend yourself. So my coping strategy is do things that are comfortable, that will not get you out of your comfort zone. Don't overachieve. First step, most people in depression don't even want to get out of bed. So what I started to do is I said, all right, what can I do to cope with this? I said, if I get out of bed and I make my bed, I've now psychologically in my brain is saying, John, you've accomplished something today. So, okay, if I did that, then I can take a shower. Two things that I've accomplished all all of a sudden. So eventually what I started to do is slowly add to those type of coping skills. Um, It's a very slow process. It needs to be done in baby steps. And you have to avoid anything that's going to make you out of that comfort zone. And that's that's uh, one of the biggest tricks.
0: Wow. I mean, for a lot of us, you know, just getting out of bed isn't that big a deal. Going to take a shower isn't that big a deal. But I guess for a lot of people who deal with severe depression, those are actually major steps to accomplish. Correct. Agreed. Agreed. Very much so.
1: But it's important to make those steps. If you're you're going to recover, you have to make those steps. You have to make a conscious effort. And nobody can tell you to do it. It's something that you have to find inside yourself. And you have to define it for yourself. What what will make me feel like I've gotten out of bed somehow and accomplished that? Um, I think the second part of that is when you eventually get to that point, you can write down one or two things that you want to accomplish that are realistic goals that aren't going to set you up to fail because quite often depressed people will set their goals too high and they will wind up failing and go right
0: back into the rabbit hole. That makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, taking, like you said, taking the baby steps uh, at the beginning of the day and throughout the day, then, you know, you can make notes and see that you've accomplished something. And and ladies and gentlemen, you may be thinking, why would it be a major accomplishment just to get out of bed and, and go take a shower? Because a lot of people who are depressed don't get out of bed. So every single step matters. And, uh, John, your book was so enlightening. Uh, you mentioned in your memoir, your friend, OB as an influential Mm -hmm. change in how you saw life. Uh, what was his advice? OB was probably the most spiritual human being I've
1: ever met in my life. Um, He kind of got it out of me what was going on in my life, how I got to the point I was. And we played chess every night for endless hours in front of a fire in Colorado. And I think one of the biggest takeaways that he taught me is he sat me down and he said, you know, all the people you think that did wrong, you did you wrong, I said, yeah, because they didn't necessarily do you wrong and you need to forgive them. But most importantly, you need to start learning to forgive yourself. And until you do that, you're not gonna get past this and you're a good guy. And he taught me life on a chessboard. He said, all of these pieces I'm gonna teach you how to play chess is the fundamentals to life because if you look at every move you make, there's an opposite and equal reaction, you know, just like science. He said, so if you look at that and you can analyze it, you can start seeing the path you don't wanna go down and perhaps the path you wanna explore. And then he started teaching me meditation and uh, we took great walks and I started, It felt like the cloud was starting to lift off my brain. I started looking at it and we went really high up into the mountains one day and we were overlooking and he said, now, John, here's the deal. I want you to look out on the mountain. I said, okay, I'm looking. He said, now I want you to close your eyes and think about your entire past. I said, okay. And he said, now, when you think about it, what I want you to recognize is all the bad and all the good that happened. I said, okay. He said, now recognize it's in the past and let it go. Throw it out to the mountains, throw it out to the plains and let it go because you can't change that which happened, but you can change how your life moves forward.
0: Smart man. And I understand Incredible. that uh, he gave you a lifelong mantra that I found very interesting. Uh, uncover, discover and recover. Can you explain? Yep. Well, uncover, discover, recover. Okay, so
1: if you uncover any situation you're facing, you will eventually have to look at it and see what the truth is. So you discover whether or not the situation was your reality or was it another reality? Was what you were experiencing during the the discovery a truth or was it your truth at the time, but not necessarily the real truth? Once you understand that, then you can begin your recovery process by, I don't know, mentors, people like OB, uh, professional um, me- mental health therapists and, and uh, other practitioners. And I think those three words have always resonated with me. So when I, <clears throat> excuse me, when I get frustrated, I stop and I say, okay, what's the truth about this situation? I need to uncover what the truth is. And I'll sit and I'll ponder, I'll ponder, I'll look at it like a chessboard, every possible angle. And I think, okay, my wife says, sometimes I overthink things, but okay, I will agree with that. But at least I've looked at it from every angle. And, and he taught me to look at it from the other person's viewpoint as well. So if you can look at your situation from somebody else's viewpoint, you might find a little wisdom in there and understand the wiggle room and start to discover the truth. And then you have a path to recovery
0: i like that so in a way instead of um fighting against certain forces um we need to like you said take time to uncover listen which allows us to possibly discover things that uh we wouldn't uh, normally uncover and then it allows us to recover and move forward and uh and you still use that today don't you I
1: think what you just said was very important. The word listen. I was not one of those people that would listen, which was primarily how my mouth got me in a lot of trouble. And once, <laughs> and once I started to learn to listen, I started hearing a different thing than what I was perceiving. And that's a tough thing to get to. But once you get there, you start thinking, okay, instead of me thinking about what I wanna to respond to the conversation, why don't I forget that, put that aside, and listen to what this person saying to me and try to grasp the meaning of it instead of me trying to interpret it so that I can then respond to it in my clever mouth way. And that, that was a big turning point for me. So I learned now to not think about an answer, but to listen to the question.
0: Yeah, I talked to, uh, this was years ago, I talked to a counselor once and <clears throat> and we were talking about anger. And he explained to me, he said, let's say that uh, somebody comes to you and uh, asks you a question. Take a few moments and ask yourself, is this something that I need to respond to now? Or can I respond to it 15 minutes from now? Or is it something that I can respond to tomorrow? He goes, that way, if you give yourself a few moments of thought most of the time you won't let your mouth overload (laughs) and possibly (laughs) say the wrong thing. And so that leads me to the next question. How do you change a negative thought into a positive action?
1: Well, a negative thought will certainly throw you in the wrong direction. For example, um, to turn a negative thought into a positive thought. Let's say you say, I was really stupid when I did X. Okay, you've now done two things. You've told everyone around you that you're stupid, and you've put yourself down. Not really a good model. So instead of saying I was really stupid about that, you might want to say, okay, here's the situation. There's a learning curve in here someplace. Let me look at it, try and learn from it, and then talk positively about myself. Now, you don't walk around saying I'm a genius, like we know some people do, but... (laughs) you just start to look at how words are powerful you know in any relationship you say something that's wrong you can't take those words back and it could have caused hurt well the same is applicable to your own life you don't want to put words out there that are going to hurt you and then have people perceive you the way you told them how to perceive yourself
0: i like that you as as you were talking the thought came into my mind that uh instead of having a negative reaction To something, or like you said, if we know that we made a mistake, we don't call ourselves stupid. Which I absolutely we do not call ourselves negative names, but to find something positive, and the, the very thing that popped into my mind was, you know, to say something positive about yourself, even if you did something that you didn't like, to to tell yourself, I am more than, you know, I'm an overcomer. I'm more than a conqueror. At least that's positive in telling yourself that you can get through this and that there is a positive end result, even though we may have not uh, began off with a positive situation. It was negative, but we can turn that around, and that's what I loved about your book. Your book is such – it's full of numerous life lessons that for me as the reader, for all of my viewers and listeners, they'll learn – from your own story. And as you were telling that story, standing on the mountain with OB, uh, the thought came to me because you were angry at God for many years. So, did you ever forgive your mother? Did you ever forgive yourself? And did you ever forgive God?
1: Did I ever forgive my mother? Did I ever forgive myself? And did I ever forgive God? Um, Yes, yes, and yes. And one of the most cathartic moments in my life was when I sat my mother down and told her the night that she put me on the train and she turned around and I told her exactly how I felt. And she burst out crying and I, and I held her. I said, mom, why are you crying? She goes, John, I turned around because I couldn't stand putting my 12 year old son on a train and feeling like I gave, I gave up as a mother. I felt worthless. And I looked at her in a whole completely different way And it goes back to uncover, discover, recover. I now finally understood from her viewpoint what was going on the day she put me on the train. And it wasn't about abandonment. It was for my own good, A, my mouth, B, she was working. Uh, At the time, she was just starting to get into a new relationship after my dad. And she was struggling, trying to keep food on the table. And she just knew that there was not enough support to manage the kind of person I was, homework, behavioral, all the other types of things, and she had no choice. And we talked for endless hours, and I said, Mom, I need to ask you questions about my dad because they're unanswered and it's really hurting. And she said, I'll make you a deal. And I said, okay, what's the deal? She goes, I will answer any of your questions tonight for as long as you want, honestly, but you have to promise this is the last time we talk about it. And I said, why is that? And she said, because it's too painful for me. And again, a moment triggered in my head and I thought, I'm hearing my mother for the first time talk about my dad in that vein. And I realized I wasn't the only one suffering from the loss of my father, but my mother was suffering greatly from it. I mean, three kids in a a ghetto, no visible means of support. Uh, She was pregnant with a fourth child and miscarried at the funeral. And when I finally put all those pieces together, especially later when I had children, I realized the choice she made was incredibly difficult and very much so, the right decision for me. I needed the discipline, and I needed to have a structure, and she couldn't offer that. and so when when we finished, we were we were both sobbing like babies, and uh it it just it felt like three hundred pounds of nonsense just lifted off my body, and, and I knew I couldn't go back and fix the damage I had done in the relationship with my mother and I, but I could moving forward. Um, love her unconditionally now as far as god i came to terms with god because i started my meditations and stuff and i thought about god and i said he hasn't been all that bad he hasn't given up on me because somehow he keeps throwing these things at me to grow Um, and somewhere along the line uh, i had a dream about jesus to be honest with you and he came to me in my dream and The short conversation was, I'm not giving up on you. Don't give up on yourself. And after that, um, I I reestablished my faith, and uh, it's been very helpful for me. Now, I'm not saying everyone has to believe in God. You can believe what you want, but as long as you believe in something, that's what you need to focus on.
0: Wow. Mm. John. (laughs) Margaret, (laughs) you know. Your book came for full circle from being 12 years old being put on a train and watching your mother disappear in, into the night and then you, the story you just told it and as I was reading your book I was like uh you know it's almost like that was your second mountaintop experience where not where you were letting it go and keeping it and just say hey the past is the past but now you're understanding what that past held and you finally heard truth and that Mm -hmm. really set you free
1: yeah i think that's very much true i mean where the path led to is i decided that i wanted to make a transition out of theater into the film business. And so I applied to a college called Occidental College and was accepted into the program. And I got there and of course I thought, okay, here we go. Yeah, I'm college graduate. Uh, nothing's gonna change me now. I'm confident, I'm strong. And about three months in the class said, well, you know all your answers. You were a professional theater guy. So why are you here? And I thought, oh God, it's starting over again. <laughs> And I had said to them, look, guys, if I knew everything, I wouldn't be sitting in this classroom. I'm here to learn like you are. And then one night when I was living in Dennis, um, I looked out at the lights and I started crying and saying, I'm a complete failure. I, I'm not going to get anywhere in life. And I fell on my bed. I started crying. And something inside of me just snapped and it said, what are you doing? Pull up your bootstraps and shut the up and get up and and make something. So I jumped up and I looked at and I said, I'm going to own you one of these days. I'm going to own you. I'm not giving up. And I went after it with a vengeance. I came up at every possibility to market myself. I was driving around town for endless hours trying to find a job. And finally, when I got my first break, I thought, okay, everybody is concerned about working for the big guys. Somebody has to work for the big guys and it's going to be you. So let's find a way to do it. You know where you are now. You know where you want to go. Let's tear it apart. So all of a sudden, I had a mental process that just wouldn't stop me from being successful.
0: Wow. You know, that reminds me of the section of your book, which I found um, pleasing, was when you were in military school and uh, you got to be part of the – the drill team with, uh, with the rifles. And right. you know the term better than I do. And you poured everything into that and you used that as a way of escape, but you learned and it helped you gain a little bit of confidence, correct? Was there something there that translated later on in the life, like you were looking out uh, over the lights in Venice? Uh, yes,
1: the drill team was, <laughs> I'm gonna be very candid with you. Um, I had an ulterior motive for being on the drill team, which was I didn't have to do any marching. (laughs) I didn't have to do any of the military stuff. (laughs) So I got to be free. And by the way, by joining the military um, drill team, all of my demerits were every demerit counted as an hour of either exercise or marching in a circle because you were a bad boy or something. They said, we're going to wipe it out as long as you show up every day. And I thought, okay, I got so many demerits. I set a record in this school. So, yeah, I'll take it. And so the drill team guy, uh, instructor saw that I had a skill and we worked and worked. And then I'd go back to my dorm with my M one rifle and I would practice for endless hours. I said, I'm not going to fail at this. <laughs> I can't, do this. I don't want to go back to that nonsense. And when the competition happened, I became the fourth best drilled cadet in the school. And from there, um, I was given a squad and I started finding uh, a discipline. Now your question is very interesting because. Even though I had a horrific experience there, the one good thing that came out of military school is if I need discipline, I can always close my eyes and say, okay, what do I need to do to be disciplined about this and attack myself or any other situation and turn it into a positive, healthy, smart decision? And for that, I thank the military school. Now, a lot of other kids had a great experience there. Mine just was not that good. But I did have a takeaway that was great.
0: Yeah, it's almost like uh there's that little glimmer of hope even with the drill team and it's to me it as I was reading your book and then the story you just told it's almost like it came back um into the adult version of you and and here you are giving it all you got in the very beginnings of your amazing film career. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, um uh, The way I look at it, you can do all things, and uh, you've got to make that choice. Uh, John, what would you say is your greatest asset to help trauma survivors? Well, my
1: greatest asset to help other people suffering is the fact that I speak their language. Having gone through it myself, I can relate to it. I understand it. I'm more experiential than clinical. I'm not a therapist, I'm not a doctor. Um, so I don't offer that kind of help, but what I do, um, offer is a place to be heard. I listen. If they ask me questions, I try to help them. Um, on Instagram, I put out, you know, this is what I do. I'm a mental health advocate. If you need help, please let me know. And a woman, um, reached out and said, can I talk to you? So I got on the phone with her and I spent an hour and a half talking to her. And at the end, she was crying saying, John, I feel like my deceased mother channeled because everything you just told me, she would have told me. And all I was doing was listening to her and responding in a positive way and encouraging her to rise up and find the confidence in herself step-by-step, step, baby steps. I mean, you don't wake up and say, hey, I'm confident today. Um, and and it gave me a great sense of accomplishment that I actually helped somebody yeah. get through their trauma.
0: Yeah, and I think, and you and you said it again, I think the most important word there when it comes to trauma survivors they simply want somebody to listen yep. and as you were a young boy in military school and and then going to the private school and things didn't get better the reoccurring thing that i kept seeing through that early part of your life was no one would take time to listen to you and yep. when it comes to trauma survivors whether it's children uh teenagers or adults It comes down to having that one person that will sit there and listen and offer them at least the belief because i think a lot of trauma survivors or people who have gone through trauma the things that they battle with is that nobody believes me and i think when somebody sits to listen and they know that they believe what they are saying is true i think that's where the first step of healing really begins do you agree yeah, i totally agree um just to recap a little bit on linkedin
1: i responded to a post of a woman who was saying something about her trauma and i responded to it and all of a sudden she came back the next day and said finally somebody gets me and i thought wow i'm glad she now felt like there is somebody out in the world that understands what she's going through and that hopefully made her feel less alone it doesn't cure her but at least it gives her an understanding that there are people out there that will listen and understand her path.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing, too, with uh, with those who have been through trauma is for them to realize that they're not alone. They aren't the only one that has experienced whatever situation that they have gone through, that there are are many, there's thousands upon thousands of other people that have and are going through The exact same thing and that there is help available Uh, as I was reading your book and came to the end your book ends with these words my path to a happy and successful life only happened when I decided when the rain stops so John how can we break the cycle of destructive behaviors once we realize we have a choice and in your words, when the rain stops.
1: Well, we go back to uncover, discover, recover, in a sense. Um, I think that the rain will stop when you take control of your life. Now, that's not a trigger that you just throw the switch and all of a sudden it happens. So I think it's important for people to find their own um analogy to when the rain stops. I mean, the reason I wrote that is one night I was thinking, there's got to be something here that'll make sense about how I was feeling and what was going on in my heart. And I thought rain, it's it's both sad and very cleansing at the same time. So I thought all of this rain coming into my heart, I can turn from negative into something that's very cleansing. And and it started to help me to heal. And, uh, and, and I encourage other people to think that way as well.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, you know, a lot of things can cause tears. And like the Bible says, you know, sorrow may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And you're right. Rain. Um, it can be, you know, it, it can be very, very cleansing uh, in the end. And ladies and gentlemen. When the Rain Stops, again, one of the best, most complete memoirs, very personal, and and we just touched lightly on this, on John's incredible story, but ladies and gentlemen, if you've ever been traumatized, you have destructive behaviors, you've been dealing with depression, maybe even suicidal thoughts or even attempted it, seek help, but at the same time, you're not alone. You can read john's book when the rain stops uh, and and even though we have to walk through his pain in the book you find many answers to where the sun will shine again you can leave things in the past you can focus uh, upon your own future which even today small steps can create a ray of sunshine and and light your path and john any last words before we go
1: well i would like to offer your um viewing audience if they are suffering and need somebody to listen i'm here please do not hesitate reach out and i promise you i will respond to you and
0: we will get together and chat and ladies and gentlemen i can tell you this john Callis is one very nice gentleman and uh, when I first met John, I would have never even imagined that this man grew up with a, with a smart mouth. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, but wow. Uh, and, and what John just told you, he means every word. So, ladies and gentlemen, even with your own life, we have a choice. So, for many of you, ask yourself, when the rain stops, well, that time is now. So, ladies and gentlemen, and again, John, I want to thank you so much for honoring us with your time and your presence today. Uh, I thank you very much for
1: having me on your show. And believe it or not, it's cathartic again to talk about because I, I never stop learning and, and I never stop growing. And by helping people,
0: it helps me. Hey, amen to that. And ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from the man himself. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. No energy, always fatigued, has your got up and go, got up and went. Primrose Leafs Pro Max 365 helps to produce natural energy, increase endurance and stamina, improve performance during exercise, reduce pain from fibromyalgia, and is excellent for cardiovascular support. A doctor-designed, deliciously berry-flavored formula that's great for ages 18 to 99. Order ProMax 365 and get the natural energy you've always wanted. Call 844-376-0007. Refuel daily with ProMax 365 and get your life back.